All right, if you got your Bibles, open to James chapter one, James chapter one, and then Luke chapter one. We're going to continue our study of Luke one and Luke chapter two uh, as we fly through the Christmas season. All right, as you're flipping that direction, uh, this is going to be an interesting study today because we're going to talk about adversity. All right, have you ever gone through a time in your life uh, where you just felt like, Lord, did it really have to be that hard? You ever had one of those moments before? Like again, if you know that God is all powerful and can provide amazing blessing to you at the snap of his fingers, at the sound of his voice, at the thought in his head, right? If the Lord can provide it in an instant, then why do we have to go through that adversity before the blessing shows up? So it begs this question. You ready? Have you ever questioned if the adversity you are facing was necessary? Have you ever questioned if the adversity you were facing was necessary? Um, I hate to tell you this, again, uh, just a little heads up, lots of movie references today. Adversity that paved the way for blessing, those are my favorite movies, right? The underdog stories when they come up, so lots of movies today, starting with uh, my favorite adversity, uh, 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 my favorite adversity movie, a movie called Tommy Boy. You ever seen Tommy Boy? Anybody see Tommy Boy? Okay, back in the day, those of us of a certain age have all watched that. It was a requirement when we were in middle school, and so all that to say, uh, Tommy Boy in the movie, the whole story, it's uh, uh, Chris Farley and David Spade. You can watch on Netflix now, right? But Chris Farley and David Spade uh, and uh, Tommy Boy, the main character, Chris Farley, kind of a bigger guy, uh, goes through all kinds of adversity. Death of his father, he inherits the company that his father had owned, but uh, basically the entire town is tied to it. Well, it all culminates at the end. He's tried to figure out a way to save the town, but he's gone to Chicago for one last ditch effort, one last final moment of hope. And when he gets there, he finds out that the step family he thought was on his side are actually against him. And there's a beautiful scene where Chris Farley, the bigger guy, is on one end of the park bench. You got David Spade, tiny guy, on the other end. And Chris Farley looks and he goes, my family's deserted me. My girlfriend's mad at me. We've lost the factory. The town's going under. I'm about to be out of a job. And then all of a sudden, the bench breaks. And he falls down. And he famously goes, could have done without that, right? Could have done without that. Now listen. For some of you, that's the way you feel about life right now. You're trying really hard. You're fighting through adversity. You believe that there's blessing that God has for you on the other side. You believe that all that you're working towards is eventually going to pay off. But all of a sudden, the bench breaks, and you go, you know what? I could have done without that, Lord. You have the power to do it in an instant. You have the power to do it with the snap of your fingers, with the breath of your lungs. You have the power to do it with the thought in your mind. Lord, you could make it happen. I believe it with all my heart. Why are you allowing me to go through this time of adversity? Well, we have an answer to that question that comes from James chapter one, and let's look at verses two through four. Here's what James has to say. James says, consider it pure joy. Underline and highlight pure joy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must look at this, must finish its work, underline finish its work, so that you may be mature and what? Complete, underline complete, not lacking anything. Now stop right there for just a minute. Notice that he doesn't just say consider it good when you go through difficulty. Consider it joy when you go through difficulty. He says consider it pure joy when you go through a time of difficulties. In fact, he comes back and says because of that difficulty that develops perseverance, it finishes its work and it completes 
maturity so that you are not lacking anything. That word finish and that word complete show again a wholeness to this aspect of adversity in our lives. So why is it if we go through adversity and we hear here from James that adversity develops perseverance and that's something to be celebrated? Why do we still look at God and go, God, why does it have to be so hard? Why does it have to be so difficult? If you're taking notes, write this down. Some of you needed to hear this today. You might even need to write it with a dry erase board or dry, dry erase marker on the mirror in your bathroom. Are you ready? God does not needlessly antagonize anyone. Let me say that again. God does not needlessly antagonize anyone. Sometimes when we're going through a time of difficulty, we can picture God like a kid with an ant farm. You ever seen an ant farm before? Ant farm's got two panes of glass, two plastic pieces on top and bottom, and then you got a whole bunch of dirt in the middle. And what happens is you put the ants into the ant farm and they dig their little tunnels, they dig their little trenches, they build their little lives. But what does every kid want to do with that ant farm? You want to shake it up, right? Because when you shake up the ant farm, the ants go crazy. They start moving around from place to place and you watch them get really upset and start over. Here's the deal. You feel so many times like, Lord, I'm digging my little trench. I'm developing my little life. I'm carving out my little section of the world and you just shook everything up. Why? Because you have a sick, twisted mind and you want to hurt me? No, there is nothing about the personality of God that needlessly antagonizes there is no wasted motion when it comes to the Lord. It says in James, consider it pure joy whenever you face these trials. Why? Because your faith is developing perseverance and God is crafting something in you that will be finished and complete. Something that is whole. That's really easy to hear. It's really tough to live through, isn't it? There's some of you here today navigating health issues true adversity. And you go, Lord, you could just heal me in an instant. Why am I having to go through this now? Why do I have to navigate this adversity? If that's you, the sermon's for you today. Some of you are looking for a job. In this climate, it's difficult. And around Christmas, there's a whole lot of low-level positions that are open, but sometimes this is when they halt hiring the big positions. And so you sit there and you go, Lord, I just feel like I'm in a holding pattern. If that's you, why are you struggling? Why are you going through this time of adversity? This is a message for you today. For some of you, it's family issues. It's community issues. For some of you, it may be relationship issues. Listen to me. If you are going through adversity, God does not needlessly put us through the ringer. He has a purpose for allowing it. So how does it all work? Are you ready? Now flip over to Luke chapter 1. And our big million dollar question today, what are the benefits to God allowing adversity before great blessing? What are the benefits to God allowing adversity before great blessing. Flip over to Luke chapter 1. We're going to continue our study of the birth of John the Baptist and then, of course, in Jesus coming to the world as well. Uh, but we will culminate the John story this week and next week uh, with, uh, with John the Baptist's birth. Are you ready? Luke chapter 1, verses 57 and 58. Uh, and here's what it says, starting in verse 57. It says, When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. 
And her neighbors and relatives heard that the heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they what? They shared her joy. I want you to underline neighbors and relatives here, and then underline that they shared her joy. So Zechariah and Elizabeth uh, have uh, uh, for twenty years, twenty plus years, been praying that they would be able to have a child. Not only them, but they've been gathering other people in the community around to pray for the same thing. And as they prayed to have a child, it just seemed like the Lord's answer repeatedly to them was no. But finally, in dramatic fashion, in Luke chapter 1, not only does Elizabeth find out that she's pregnant, but that her child is going to be very, very special, and they are to name him John. And the way this is revealed happens in a crazy moment with Zechariah with an angel in the Holy of Holies at the temple. So because of that, the story begins to spread, and then here's what happens. It says that this is not just a blessing for Zechariah and Elizabeth, but the neighbors and the relatives all what? Share in the joy. If you're taking notes, write this down. What are the benefits of God allowing adversity before great blessing? Number one, the blessing is multiplied and shared. The blessing is multiplied and shared. You ever had somebody in your life that it just seems like all they did was win. You know what I mean? Just being honest with you. You ever had somebody in your life and it seemed like relationship-wise, money-wise, job-wise, for you military personnel, again, the, 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 uh, the stations that they got posted to, I mean, you just sit there and you just go, I feel like their soundtrack in their head is all you do is win, 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 no matter what, 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 right? I mean, everything is just up and up for them all the time. Great family, great work situation, perfect Facebook, you know, crafted to perfection. Can you ever feel like that? And here's what happens. The Lord blesses them with something massive. I mean, something just truly amazing. Can I tell you just, again, I, I'm as sinful as anybody else. I see that and I just go, oh, good for them, right? Good for them. There's no real celebration on your part because you just look at them and go, oh, it's just another blessing. Now, just for the record, we all know that Facebook is a lie, all right? And we all know that nobody's life is perfect, that everybody goes through failure and difficulty. But when we perceive that someone just wins and wins and wins all the time, whenever they receive a great blessing, we typically don't give a whole lot of glory to God. But listen to me. You ever had that friend and it just seemed like they hit brick wall after brick wall after brick wall and you prayed for them? You were engaged in their story. You tried to help in ways that you could. And then all of a sudden, some big, massive blessing falls. I'm getting chills even just talking about it. Some big, massive blessing falls on them. Can I tell you what happens if you're like me? I feel like I got the blessing. I feel like I received the joy that was bestowed upon them because I was empathetic and invested in the journey that they were on. Why does the Lord allow adversity before great blessing? Because the blessing is multiplied and shared with those around us. If you're taking notes, write this down. After being empathetic to someone else's burden, it is more natural to genuinely rejoice in their victories. Let me say that again. After being empathetic to someone else's burden, it is more natural to genuinely rejoice in their victories. What we find here is not Zechariah and Elizabeth going, well, it was about time we received our blessing. We prayed for it for 20 plus years. No, instead, they're rejoicing in the way that God has blessed them. Man, their neighbors, their relatives, the entire town is sitting there going, man, we feel like this child belongs to all of us, that this blessing given from God is all of our blessing. Sometimes what the Lord is doing with you is the adversity is crafting your testimony. It's crafting your God story 
so that then he can be visible and seen. I told you there'd be a lot of movies used today, all right? One of my favorites, okay, is a movie called Rudy. I talked about it a few weeks ago. Did you ever see Rudy? About a young man who wanted nothing more than to play one football play for the University of Notre Dame, all right? Why he wanted to go to Notre Dame, I'll never know. No, I'm just kidding, all right? All that to say. Wanted to play for Notre Dame. That was his dream. And just for the record, you want to talk about multiplied and shared blessings? The whole goal of Rudy was just that he get to play one play for the University of Notre Dame. That's all he wanted. I mean, you want to talk about big blessing for one individual that didn't matter for anyone else? And yet, what do you find through the story? It's a compelling story of this underdog that receives this big blessing that is multiplied out to everybody in his life. I love that movie so much, and it's one of those, for the first two hours, it's just heartache and adversity, heartache and adversity, difficulty after difficulty, and I love it so much because the last like 20, 25 minutes of the movie, he just gets victory after victory, and it's nothing stuff. I mean, nothing stuff, and here's the deal. I sob through the last 20, 25 minutes. It's just the way it goes, and I'm not talking like single tear. I'm talking about, I mean, heaving ugly cry through this movie. I think because I was the undersized football player myself. I really see myself in the Sean Austin character. Just, just one of those things when I watch this movie. So much so that when Autumn and I were dating, it's a true story, when Autumn and I were dating, remember back in the day when you had to watch movies on cable like as they came on? You remember that? Before all the on-demand stuff? And so uh, back in the day, children, all right, we used to have to just watch the TV as it was presented to us, all right? So anyway, all that to say. TBS put on Rudy, and Rudy as it comes on, you had to, you caught it, and you had to start up. Well, anyway, so I catch Rudy kind of after the first 15, 20 minutes. Autumn calls. We were supposed to go on a date. She goes, hey, I got kept at work today. She goes, it's going to be another couple of hours. And I'm like, oh, I guess I can watch Rudy. And so turn on the, watching the movie, watching it through on TBS. It's getting drug out because of the commercials and everything. And so I'm watching it. And all of a sudden, I mean, we get to that last 20, 25 minutes. I'm in my apartment alone waiting for my girlfriend, who would then be my wife now of almost 17 years, to show up. And I'm sitting there watching Rudy on TBS and it gets to the point where all the good stuff starts to happen and I'm telling you he makes that tackle at the end of the movie and that's like the culmination of all of it so the music is crescendo and I mean he makes that tackle well of course Autumn walks in at that moment and I'm just <laughs> you know and she goes oh my gosh did someone die I'm like no Rudy made a tackle you know and she's just like what is wrong with you <laughs> the story the story is all he wants to do is play one play for the university. But in order to get to do that, remember his friend dies in the, his friend dies in the steel plant. He's the first in his family to even attempt to go to college. And so he's got all that pressure from his family. So that day he gets to dress at the stadium and be a part of the team. It's a culmination of so many things. There was a head of maintenance who'd had racial discrimination against him years before that goes to the game for the first time. He had provided a place for Rudy to live uh, at that point. Man, allows him to go and, and to survive and to be able to pay his bills. And then he connects with a tutor that helps him keep his grades up and get the good enough grades so that he can get into school there at Notre Dame. And I'm telling you, that final scene, you watch it. The head of maintenance is there cheering him on at the first game he's been to since he experienced that hate. The tutor is there cheering like he's the one that's down on the field out making a tackle. And you watch the student body and the teammates, they hoist him up, cheer his name. And his father and mother cry in the stands. Listen to me. Adversity shares and multiplies blessing. 
The Lord allows us to go through difficulty because he is writing a story, a testimony in you that he will use to bless the world. That's what he's done with John. By the way, no better example of that than through the life of Jesus over and over and over again. The Son of God chose the more difficult path because through that the Lord would multiply and share the blessing. Save your spot there in Luke 1 and flip over to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, and let's read verses 30 through 44. By the way, a little interesting thing, other than the resurrection, the only miracle that's recorded by all four gospel writers is the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000 in the ancient world was like the pinnacle moment. The idea that you could take bread, that you could take uh, one, one, uh, two pieces of bread, and, uh, or five loaves of bread and two pieces of fish and turn it into food for five to 15,000 people. I mean, I'm telling you, that was a story that everybody wanted to hear. And in Mark chapter six, Mark's version of the feeding of the 5,000 shows us just how dire the circumstance was because it refers twice to how hungry the people were. Look at what happens in Mark six, starting in verse 30. It says, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. It says then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, then Jesus said to the disciples, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place to get some rest. So this is right after Jesus has sent out the disciples to preach. And what happened is it was so powerful and all the people went, man, we want to hear about this Jesus that you've been preaching about. So when the disciples come back to him, it's thousands of people that are going with them and they didn't have a chance to eat anything. Verse 32, so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and they ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them, look at this, many things. This isn't a short lesson. This is a long sermon, a long day of conference that he's giving to them and they already had had nothing to eat after that day of travel. It says, by this time it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him and they said, look, Jesus, this is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. We're hungry. And they took the same journey that we did, the disciples are saying here. We're all hungry. Send them away so we can get something to eat. Look at verse 37. But Jesus answered, you give them something to eat. Then they said to him, "Uh, that would take eight months wages. Are we to go spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves you got? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five loaves and two fish. Remember, it's five to 15,000 people. Five loaves and two fish. We got one sack lunch, Jesus. One kid wanted to offer it up to share. Verse 39, then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, And taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks, broke the loaves, and then he gave them to his disciples and set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. You got to picture this. Ancient world. Bread and fish from one sack lunch. The process to get bread was finding the field, clearing the field, planting the seed, making sure that you watered it and took care of it, growing the seed, 
picking the seed, harvesting the seed, and then making the grain, and then from there, going through the arduous process of making bread. What Jesus just did here was he took an entire season, and he condensed it into one simple miracle. And listen to me. Because of the adversity, the adversity was they were all hungry. It was a need every single one of them felt. And then what happens? And they're out there in the middle of nowhere. There is no stinking way they could have faked it. There's no stinking way that Jesus could have fed 15,000 people off the cuff. Some of you got that experience this Thanksgiving because it was hard to feed 10 people at your house, right? Can you imagine 5 to 15,000? But the adversity that they all experienced multiplied and shared the blessing for everyone to get to experience. If you're taking notes, it begs this question. Have you considered the effect your story is having on those around you? Have you considered the effect your story is having on those around you? They all felt the pain, the adversity of hunger, but the Lord was developing a miracle that we would still talk about thousands of years later. One more Jesus story in the midst of that has to do with Jesus' road to the cross. You know, he had a handler through that whole journey. It was a guy called the centurion. Centurion's the one who would have been there when he showed up with Pilate. He would have heard the backroom meetings He would have heard Jesus tried in secret. He would have heard Pilate try to get him to settle. You lawyers in the room, try to get Jesus to settle to lesser charges so he wouldn't have to take his life. He would have heard them call out for Barabbas, the murderer, to be released instead of Jesus. He would have seen Jesus flogged 39 times with the cat of nine tails. He would have seen the Son of God struggle up the hill with his cross to the point that someone else had to carry it. He would have watched Jesus willingly lay out his arm to be nailed to that cross and he would have watched him forgive the crowd before he took his last breath and then it says after jesus took his last breath the earth quaked and the sky turned black that centurion after experiencing all of that adversity then looks up without any religious background in judaism and he would have looked and said man surely this was the son of god adversity Adversity is something that creates shared and multiplied blessing. We all become invested in the testimony, in the story, and it stirs the same joy within us that others are experiencing directly. Again, begging the question, have you considered the effect your story is having on those around you? I'm sorry you're going through difficulty. God is crafting something that will be perfect. Now flip back over to Luke chapter 1. And let's look at Luke 1, verses 59 through 65. So again, neighbors and relatives can't believe this. They're sharing in the joy. It's like John's the village baby, all right? Now verse 59, it says, On the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But the mother spoke up and said, no, 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 he is to be called John. The reason that Elizabeth says this is because the angel had told Zechariah that the baby was supposed to be called John. Verse 61, it says, they said to her, there's nobody among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would be like, or to find out, to find out what he would like for the na- to name the child. They, he asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, no, his name is John. Now stop right there for just a minute. Remember, Zachariah and Elizabeth, no other children. They look at him and go, hey, clearly this baby's going to be named Zach Jr., all right? He's the one and he's the only 
family, he's got to carry the family name. But the angel of the Lord has let them know this is a very, very special child, and he is to be named John. There doesn't need to be any, uh, there doesn't be any confusion that this is Zach Jr. This is someone truly that the Lord has given to the world, a blessing for all of us. So what happens? The crowd looks and they go, man, this seems like a waste here. They're not going to have any more kids. They're already old. This one's already a miracle. Are you sure you want to do this? And when Elizabeth says his name is John, all of a sudden they go to the one person that can make the change, to Zechariah. This is interesting, by the way. We find out that Zechariah is mute in the earlier part of the passage. It says here that they make signs to him. It means either after that experience with the angel, or at least by this point, he has lost the ability to hear as well. He's not just mute, he's also deaf. So what does he do? He says, give me a writing tablet. And to his astonishment, he writes out, not his name will be John, not his name should be John, but his name is John. What a powerful statement from the man of God. Verse 64, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak praising God. I want you to picture this, by the way, preacher that wasn't allowed to preach for nine months, all right? And he's got a lot to say. You ready for this? Verse 65, the neighbors were all filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, the people were talking about all these things. Now stop right there for just a minute. After Zechariah's mouth is loosed, all of a sudden in the frailty of his existence, remember he couldn't even speak, he couldn't even hear, and all of a sudden he is turned loose after writing out his name is John, proclaiming the glory of God that the angel had told him to do, following through with what God had called him to do. And what happens? All of a sudden he is set free from his weakness to proclaim the greatness of Almighty God. If you're taking notes, what are the benefits to God allowing adversity before great blessing? Number one, the blessing is multiplied and shared. And number two, the presence of God is magnified. The presence of God is magnified. You've heard me say this over and over again, but it's a good thing to remember. The old timers always used to say when I was growing up, give it to God, give it to God. I always struggled to understand what that meant. And as I've gotten older, I've understood it wasn't them saying, I just don't worry about it. Give it to God means do the very best you can and then trust God to fill in the gap and to do the rest that you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt. I could not have made this happen on my own. It's through that lens that God is made visible so very powerfully. If you're taking notes, write this down. Weakness and adversity, spotlight a void that we cannot fill on our own. Weakness and adversity, spotlight a void that we cannot fill on our own. We talked about the idea of God being magnified a couple of weeks ago when we read Mary's song. When you go through difficulty, when you have true weakness, it spotlights a need, and then the Lord is made visible when he inserts himself into the problem, into the issue, when he shows up on our behalf. When that happens, he's magnified. Some of you wear glasses or you got contacts, or at one point you had to go to the optometrist, all right? You've been to the optometrist before, those of us who have glasses, or if you got LASIK. Um, I still remember when I was a little kid, I'm nearsighted. So that means from here, six months in front of, or six, uh, six inches in front of my face, guys, I can see like a microscope. 
But without my glasses, everything else is just a blur. In fact, so much so, even when you have to read that little eye chart, I can't even see the E at the top. I'm that blind. I just can't see, again, here to here microscope. Up, up front, I can't see just about anything. And so I remember as a kid, the way that my parents knew that I needed glasses is because I would sit six inches in front of the TV. I would just sit so close and so finally go in to get to the optometrist. And when I go in, they take that big thing that they bring around and they put them right in front of your eyes. Do you remember? And you can see through the little holes and then they click, click, click. And they go, is this better? Click, click. Or is this better? And it's like, oh, I'm telling you, my eyes are so bad. I mean, everything's just like a cloud, like floating clouds. And I'm telling you, when they click, click, I'm like, whoa, there are words on that board, right? I'm telling you, it just blew me away. And they were like, well, is that better? Or click, 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 is this better? And I'm telling you, by the end of it, I'm sitting there going, I had no idea stop signs had stop on it. You know what I mean? I just can't believe that, right? I'm telling you, I was so blind that all of a sudden, when it came into clear, when it came into clear focus, it changed the world. For some of us, you are spiritually blind. You're sitting there and I'm telling you, you have this idea. It's cloudy the way that God moves and the way that God works. Adversity. Adversity is click, click, click. Is this better or this? Click, click, click. Is this better or this? And then all of a sudden the world begins to come into focus and you see the fingerprints of God in every aspect of the world. Great spiritual example of that is Moses. Sometimes we view Moses through the lens of Charlton Heston on Ten Commandments, right? I love it. It's one of my other favorite movies. But when you watch it, you got to remember, the defining characteristic of Moses was not his booming Charlton Heston voice. The defining characteristic of Moses was weakness in every aspect. Do you remember? Moses is born in the midst of a massive genocide. There's a whole generation of Israeli boys, Jewish boys, they were put to death. The edict was to throw them into the Nile. And in dramatic fashion, through Moses' mom making the basket and the kindness and empathy of Pharaoh's daughter coming in to meet Moses, all of a sudden in this beautiful, beautiful moment, you have Moses who's preserved. Just him breathing and being the age that he was screamed the existence of God. Not only that, do you remember when the burning bush shows up? When the Lord speaks to him, Moses looks and when God gives him the task to go, he says, oh, but Lord, I don't know how to speak. He was the one raised in Pharaoh's palace, but did not feel like he was confident in his words. Not only that, he had run away because he had committed murder. Every aspect of Moses, he never should have even had a moment where he was in Pharaoh's court. And yet there he was, the presence of God magnified. When you think about the way that the Lord brought about the 10 plagues, when you think about the parting of the Red Sea, why did they follow Moses? Because he was the most charismatic, no stinking way, not the way the passage in Exodus reads. They followed him because every aspect of his life screamed the existence of God. It begs the question, have you used the platform inspired by your adversity to acknowledge God's involvement? Have you used the platform inspired by your adversity to acknowledge God's involvement. There are some of you here today that need to make the decision that you are going to share the testimony that God has given you, that you're going to share that blessing with the world by taking some time to put it to words. More on that in just a second. 
Now flip back over to Luke chapter 1, and let's read our final verse, verse 66 here. It says here at the end, everyone who heard this wondered about it, underline wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand is with him. I love this passage because it starts off Again, with blessing being multiplied and shared, it says that the people uh, shared, uh, they shared in Elizabeth and, uh, and uh, Zechariah's joy. It furthers by them saying, by saying that the people were in awe about the things that God had done and they began talking about them. But then all of a sudden it ends in verse 66 by going, and they begin to look to the future at what this could mean moving forward. If you're taking notes, our final point today, what are the benefits to God allowing adversity before great blessing? Number one, the blessing is multiplied and shared. Number two, the presence of God is magnified. And number three, it establishes a foundation for hope. It establishes a foundation for hope. You see, the people who've experienced the blessing that was given to Zechariah and Elizabeth, because they've shared in the joy it causes them to go, if God could do this, then what does that mean he can do in the future as well? What does that mean he could do in my life, for our country, for our people? What does that mean that God could do moving forward? It establishes a foundation of hope. If you're taking notes, write this down. Becoming conscious of God's involvement in the past and present alters the way we process the future. He said again, becoming conscious of God's involvement in the past and the present alters the way that we process the future. I love the example of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 37. We get a great verse. Saul is looking at David and goes, David, how do you know that you're going to defeat this giant? How do you know that you can go out and win this battle? You're just a kid and you're four foot two. He's, he's nine, and a half, nine and a half feet tall. How in the world can you go out and win this thing? How can you be so sure? 1 Samuel 17, 37 is where the power comes from. David says, well, Saul, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will surely deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Can I tell you what he's saying there? The Lord delivered me in the past from a four foot lion. He delivered me in the past from a six foot tall bear. And you know what? I have no reason to doubt that he will deliver me from the nine and a half foot tall Philistine. Small, medium, large, baby, extra large even. The Lord can take care of whatever he wants to do. A foundation of hope is going, Lord, I saw you do it once. I believe you can do it again. I believe that you are the one who's in control. We forget how important hope is. I think because especially in our city, that word gets used all the time for all sorts of different reasons. You know what hope means? Hope means that you believe there's still time for things to get better. It's a definition of hope. Hope means that you believe there's still time for things to get better. It's why when I preach weddings... I usually highlight 1 Corinthians 13, 7. It's one of the non-negotiables of hope. Hope bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. When you get married, you got to know hope is a requirement. When you say, I do, what you're saying is, Lord, we believe that there will always be hope because you are the center of our relationship. Hope believes there will always be time for things to get better. How do you establish hope? You get a hero. You remember things God's done when he delivered you from lions and bears. And when you're staring at the nine and a half foot tall giant, it's just another bear. It's just another lion. He did it before and he can certainly do it again. Save your spot there. Actually, you don't have to save your spot. Last verse, flip over to Romans chapter five. 
And let's read verses three through five. Romans five, verses three through five. Paul writes it this way, very similar to James chapter one. Paul writes, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, perseverance, character. And character, hope. Look at this. And hope does not disappoint us. Underline, hope does not disappoint us. Because God has poured out his love into our hearts and by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Paul says here in the same way, difficulty springs up, adversity springs up, but it's not God punishing us and it's not God messing with us. He is developing something in us that is foundational and true and will hold us together. It begs the question, have you framed your testimony in such a way that it inspires hope and causes people to think? Let me say it again. Have you framed your testimony in such a way that it inspires hope and causes people to think. Now just for the record, frame doesn't mean spin. Okay? You're not called to spin it for Jesus. What you're called to do is figure out a way to frame the masterpiece that God has painted in and through your life, to frame it in such a way with the words that you choose, with the way that you write, with the things that you post, with the way that you interact with others, to frame it in such a way that God gets the glory. Just for the record... One of the things that I inherited uh, when my mom just got remarried and my father passed away is I inherited my favorite painting, all right? Um, my dad and mom back in the day went to an estate sale, went to an auction, and they got this. It's a, it's a, obviously, it's not original, but it's a, a picture of Venice, just beautiful. It's, a, it's an original painting, not by like a famous, a famous artist or anything. It's this beautiful, uh, beautiful painting of Venice. And so I always admired it from the time I was young. And then my mom said, she goes, I want you to have it. Well, here's the deal. Beautiful painting of Venice, but the frame is this huge, gaudy, broke gold frame. And it even angles out to the side. And I'm telling you, it's just massive. Again, the, the painting's about like this. And the frame was like twice the size of the painting. It's just massive. And I'm telling you, just very ornate and, and just gorgeous. And so I'm telling you, the painting is beautiful. But the frame draws your eyes in and makes it just jump off the page. Feel, you feel like you're looking at Venice as you look at this painting. And so all that to say, we brought it to our house and Autumn was like, love the picture, hate the frame, all right? It's just not going to work for us. And so I told her, I was like, it's my favorite picture. And she goes, I agree, it's gorgeous. She goes, it just doesn't work. And so we hung it on our walls. And I mean, we live in a little townhome. I mean, it took up about half the room, you know what I mean? Just to try to get this thing up. And so we put the picture frame up, Autumn looks, I mean, we're even sitting on our couch and like bumping our head against it because the frame is so big on the backside. And we were just like, this isn't going to work. So finally, I told Autumn, I was like, well, I'm going to take it out of the frame. And I said, we'll figure out what to do with it from there. And so we take it out of the frame. We set it up. And I'm telling you, it's still beautiful. But listen, it wasn't like it was before. Taking the frame off, you could see the imperfections on the canvas. You could see different places where it distracts from the beauty of what the master had painted. And so can I tell you what we have to figure out how to do? We got to put it in the right frame. One that fits our house, so we don't bump our heads up against it, but also one that doesn't discount the beauty of what the master had done. Listen to me, for some of you, just being honest, for some of you, God has blessed you in dramatic, masterful fashion. But the frame that you've put around that blessing, the frame 
The picture is worth a whole lot more than the frame that you've put it in. Maybe your word today is to figure out just like Zechariah, how do I put to words the greatness of what God has done for me? How do you post it? How do you write it? How do you text it to someone that you deeply love to let them know what God has done? How do you sit down and have that conversation? Because your testimony is worth it. If God has painted something masterful in your life, figure out a way so that it isn't distracted by the frame that it's been put in. Thanks for listening today, guys. I hope that you got something out of this. Now, don't tune out. The most important part of our service are these next few moments where we listen to what the Spirit wants us to do with it. Let's bow our heads for prayer.